0: As we've established in previous episodes of the podcast, St. Louis is a city filled with ghosts. It was constructed on a foundation of mud, blood, river water, and beer, but ghosts can be found lurking in every nook and cranny. A city with a past that's so filled with violence and death can't help but be home to a ghost or two. But St. Louis, of course, is a city with more than just a ghost or two. It's a city that has more than one or two haunted houses as well. We all know the famous ones, like the infamous Lip mansion on the south side, where members of that unlucky family still linger behind. But there are more, many more, In the next two episodes of the podcast, we're going to delve into some of the lesser known haunted houses in St. Louis. We'll be bringing you stories that you may have never heard before, along with the true story behind a few legends that have grown a little out of control over the years. It's gonna be a whirlwind trip to many different parts of the city, so hold on tight. Just keep in mind though, that even with two full episodes to devote to these spirited dwellings, we'll still have to pick and choose from St. Louis's many haunted houses. We'll likely leave a few out because it seems there's at least one haunted house in every single neighborhood in the city. It might be the one next door to you, or who knows, it might just be yours. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. There's nothing to see today at number 919 Chateau Avenue, but in 1900, there was an abandoned property at this address that was being closely looked after by a private watchman named John Kinsella. He paid such close attention to the house for two reasons. One reason was that the house was rumored to be haunted. Recent occupants of the property had not stayed long and one family even fled the place in terror. But was that because of the ghosts? or because they learned the name of the house's previous owner. See, the owner's name was the second reason that John Kinsella had to keep such a close eye on the place. The house had been plagued by ghoulish souvenir hunters because it once belonged to perhaps the most reviled woman in St. Louis history. Her name was Henrietta Bamberger, and while no one remembers her crimes today, her dark deeds were splashed across the city's newspapers at the turn of the last century. In November 1899, Henrietta was indicted for the deaths of at least four women and children, all slain during her years as a St. Louis midwife. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch called her, quote, a murderous fiend in woman's form, a life-taking monster slaying women and babies under the cloak of a ministering physician. According to testimony that was given to the grand jury, she burned and drowned infants and killed young women and disposed of their bodies. According to one witness, she dumped the bodies in the river and buried at least one of her victims in the cellar of her house. An indictment was returned against her for four murders, including that of an infant that she strangled, drowned, and then burned in her stove. But what the newspapers failed to mention, since this was not something generally discussed in print in the late 19th century, was that while Henrietta was a midwife, her real profession was as an abortionist. Abortion was illegal in every state in the union in those days, but this does not mean it wasn't widely practiced, usually under unsafe conditions and carried out by midwives, back alley doctors, and people with no training at all. In most cases, abortions were done using drugs, which could be both dangerous and ineffective. This often meant that a woman would be forced to submit to a surgical abortion. An operation by a well-regarded practitioner might cost as much as $500, a sum that only the upper class could afford. A less reputable abortionist, like Henrietta Bamberger, might charge as little as $5, but one must wonder what such an operation entailed and how dangerous it might be. An abortion done in secrecy, conducted by someone with little or no skill, could be a recipe for death for the mother, probably after an agonizing battle with infection. But according to Henrietta's nurses, she had less than subtle ways of dealing with the corpses left behind from her botched surgeries. Rumors reached the police about Henrietta's operation in the early months of 1899. Two detectives were assigned to investigate, but they could find little evidence that any crimes had been committed. People in the neighborhood did admit that a large number of women came and went from Henrietta's home each day. A witness later claimed she sometimes performed as many as 15 surgeries in a day, but no one could say for certain why they were visiting. Henrietta did offer services as a midwife, although most of the women did not appear to be expecting. It would be two of Henrietta's nurses who eventually turned on her, providing the police with the names or descriptions of several women who used Henrietta's services and died as a result. One of her victims was a girl named Lida Bressert, who had come to Henrietta seeking an abortion and died from complications. When she realized the girl could not be saved, Henrietta locked her in a back bedroom and refused to allow her nurses to care for her. Her body was later buried in the cellar of the house's stable, where it was discovered by the police. But it wasn't the body that initially sealed Henrietta's fate. It was what Lida left behind. When Lida realized she was dying, she gave away her possessions to the two nurses. or so the two nurses later claimed. It's just as easy to believe that they helped themselves to her belongings, and later, perhaps after an attack of conscience, or more likely, questions from the police, handed them over to the detectives. Lida had a heart-shaped locket that she wore on a gold chain, which she gave to one nurse, and she gave her single nightdress to the other. Once the police had these items, they obtained a photograph of Lida Bressert from her parents. In the photograph, she was wearing a locket that was identical to the one that the nurse had in her possession. Both nurses agreed that the girl in the photograph was the same one buried beneath the stable. Another of Henrietta's victims was Mary Holtkamp of Mexico, Missouri. As far as the nurses could remember, she had died in November, 1896. When she had come to Henrietta's home for an abortion, she had asked that her mother be notified if she should die during the operation. Henrietta, of course, did no such thing. After Mary died on the operating table, she had the dead girl buried under a false name in the Holy Ghost Cemetery on Gravois Road outside of the city limits. After Henrietta was arrested, it was learned that her parents had reported the girl missing three years before. The third victim in the indictment was Ida Zimmerman from Marine, Illinois. She became a patient at the Bamberger House in October 1894. After she died from complications, her body was stuffed into a trunk, loaded onto a wagon, and dumped in the Merrimack River, where it was discovered a short time later. After the indictment was handed down against Henrietta, not a day went by when her name did not appear in the pages of the city's newspapers. Testimony given before the grand jury appeared in print and rumors spread that Henrietta might have killed as many as 300 women and children during her career as a midwife and abortionist. Although abortion was always implied, but never specifically stated. Her list of possible crimes continued to grow, as did her list of victims, to include an unnamed Bohemian woman who lived near 9th and Southard Streets, and a Wilhelmina Spory who lived on Illinois Avenue. In the end, the two additional murders, as well as the alleged hundreds of infants, were not included at trial. Prosecutors were only able to get charges to stick on one crime, manslaughter. She received a sentence of five years in the penitentiary. Records about what happened to Henrietta after her release from prison are sketchy at best. From what I've been able to discover, she returned to St. Louis after her sentence was finished and died in Clayton in January 1944 at the age of 77. She was buried in Tennessee where she'd been born and her grave can be found in the Temple Israel Cemetery in Memphis. There are a few notations in books about female serial killers that list Henrietta Bamberger among them. But the number of deaths attributed to Henrietta could really only be connected to her work as an abortionist. She was a criminal, there's no question about that. Abortion was illegal at the time and she made a living performing them. She was also responsible for the deaths of probably an unknown number of patients. However, they died from infection, negligence and neglect. She further broke the law by hiding their bodies and paying for phony death certificates. But was she the depraved killer that the newspapers made her out to be? Well, probably not. But she was a pretty terrible person. I think we can all agree on that. But in St. Louis in 1900, she was a monster. And so when reports about her house being haunted began to appear in newspapers and to be talked about in the neighborhood, people were quick to believe it. John Kinsella, the private watchman who had been employed to keep an eye on the Bamberger House, confessed he didn't really believe in ghosts, especially after he caught two thieves who had broken into the place. He'd been making his rounds one night and happened to see a flickering light in a second floor window. Putting no faith in the uncanny rumors, he said, that were afloat about the abandoned house, he decided to investigate. Drawing his revolver, he quietly slipped into the house and started up the stairs. In the darkness, though, he made a misstep that resulted in a loud noise. Immediately after, he heard a scurrying on the second floor. The light he'd seen from outside was extinguished and the two spooks scrambled out a nearby window. Whoever they were, they were never caught. They took nothing with them and left nothing behind but a burned down nub of a candle. Kinsella told a newspaper reporter he had no explanation for what the men were doing in the house, but admitted that it could have been to further enhance the stories of ghosts that were floating around the neighborhood. He had seen nothing out of the ordinary in the house, but had been hired to keep out curiosity seekers. He told the reporter, quote, The Bamberger house has been generally shunned since the unpleasant notoriety connected with it a year ago. Last summer, a family occupied it for two months and departed suddenly, saying it was haunted. It's offered at a very low rental, but no one will live in it. Was the house avoided because of the murder scandal connected to it or because it was haunted? Well, we'll never know for sure. The neighborhood insisted that the young women who died in the house had stayed behind as restless spirits, but it's unknown if those stories were based on eyewitness accounts or on the superstitions of those who lived nearby. If there was any place in the city that was likely to be haunted, though, it certainly could have been the Bamberger House. Located near Lindell Boulevard and scattered throughout the central west end are the many designated private places where clusters of old homes stand proudly against the passage of time. There's been a lot of debate over the years about the origin of St. Louis's private places. Some believe that they're a continuation of the French town square. Some have suggested they're a continuation of the colonial St. Louis custom of surrounding houses with stockade fences to protect from attacks by enemies. But honestly, I think this is really overthinking the idea. Most likely the city's private places were simply built as a reaction to the uncontrolled growth of St. Louis neighborhoods in the late 19th century. There was no zoning protection in those days. St. Louis was sort of a free-for-all when it came to who built what and where they built it. The city was crowded and the rich and elite wanted to have a place for themselves that they could keep out the factories, unwanted businesses, and undesirable neighbors, which really just meant immigrants, poor people, and the middle class. During their heyday, the private places were home to the city's wealthiest families. Their mansions were built on a scale unlike anything that St. Louis had seen before. They were the most desirable places to live in the city and the owners wanted to keep it that way. There were no tanneries, museums, breweries, or schools allowed to locate nearby. Property owners had to have their front steps scrubbed at least twice a week. Three sets of curtains were required for every window that faced the street. Homes had to cost a minimum of $30,000 to build, which is $787,000 in today's dollars, and had to be built at least 30 feet from the street. All main entrances had to face the street. No non-family members were allowed to spend more than one night in any home in a place, and any for-rent or for-sale signs were completely out of the question. While there are plenty of ghostly tales haunting the Central West End, perhaps the private place with the most ghost stories was Horton's Place. The most famous person associated with Horton's Place, at least when it comes to their ghostly connections, was Elsa Limp, the tragic daughter of Beer Baron William Lemp. Most listeners should not be surprised to learn that the house was rumored to be haunted for years. Now, Elsa may have been Horton's Place's most famous person, but she was not the most famous ghost. That specter is a young girl who haunts the house that became known as the castle many years ago. Horton's place is dedicated to the memory of this little girl it even bears her name. She was deeply loved by her father, and when she died too young, he built the place as a monument to preserve her memory for all time. Jacob Goldman was born in Germany in 1845. He came to America as a young man to make his fortune, first working in the cotton industry in Arkansas and New Orleans and then coming to St. Louis. He started the Lesser Goldman Cotton Company it became one of the largest merchants in the world. Jacob got married, had four children, and made plans for a prosperous and successful future. But as the old saying goes, man plans and God laughs. Fate had other things in mind for poor Jacob Goldman. In 1894, Jacob's wife died, leaving him alone to raise his four children. Then in 1896, his daughter Hortense also died. Jacob was grief-stricken by the loss. Before these tragedies occurred though, the Goldmans had been living near downtown, but Jacob wanted to move his family to the West End, perhaps into one of the new private places like so many others of his wealth and stature were already doing. However, because he was Jewish, he was not accepted into any of the established private communities. So he decided to build his own. He bought a large tract of land between Kings Highway and Euclid and called it Hortons Place in honor of his daughter. He purchased stone from Carthage, Missouri and built a huge set of entrance gates in 1899. One year later, he hired architect William Levy to construct a home from the same materials. The house became one of the finest in the Central West End. It had a large stone arch over the entry, rounded towers and gabled roofs. The entry and grand staircase were carved from oak. Stained glass windows decorated the landing. The music room was made from bird's eye maple and had an intricately carved fireplace. The second floor had four large bedrooms and the third floor boasted the largest ballroom in St. Louis. Jacob spent more than $35,000 on just the furnishings in the house. And even those who had snubbed him when he wanted to move into their private places because he was a Jew desperately wanted to receive an invitation to one of his lavish parties. Jacob sold the surrounding lots in the community to influential and eminent residents of the city, including Burt Walker, the grandfather of President Herbert George Walker Bush. He surrounded himself with millionaires, with opulence in society, but there are no accounts that exist to say whether he was happy in his new home. You see, after the death of his wife and daughter, Jacob never spoke about his happiness again. The Goldman's lived in the house until the 1930s when it was purchased by the Henry Miller family. The mansion was considered gloomy by 1930s standards, so they started modernizing the place and soon found it was haunted. The Miller's household staff was the first to notice that strange things were going on. Knowing nothing of the house's sad history, they began talking about a ghostly little girl who was heard calling out by the staircase at night. Her mournful cries echoed through the landing and entryway as she searched desperately for her father. Her voice was heard calling out over and over again, but there was no little girl to be found. Confused, one of the staff members looked to see which one of the Miller's daughters needed assistance, but neither of the girls were home at the time. After this happened several times, the staff realized that the searching little girl was not among the living. According to later accounts, Mr. Miller took the staff's reports quite seriously. All whether he believed there was a ghost or whether he believed that someone had gotten into the house to try and scare the family is unknown. What is known is that perhaps for the sake of the staff's nerves, he hired an armed guard to patrol the house on Halloween night. After the Millers moved out, the castle fell on hard times. The neighborhood went through some setbacks during the depression and many homes were affected. During the 1940s and fifties, the castle sat forlorn and abandoned except for incursions by vandals who broke in, stole chandeliers, copper pipes, and fireplace mantles. The lawn became overgrown and the house crumbled into disrepair. It was occupied again briefly in the 1960s by an artist who tried to turn it into a boarding house, but it was soon empty again. Barry Alexander purchased the house in 1971. He saved it by restoring and renovating it, but he didn't do much to preserve the original design of the place. For instance, he raised the floor in the front parlor and covered it with brown shag carpeting to create a conversation pit. He also put in a Spanish style kitchen, which while great in the swinging 1970s, didn't do much for the architectural integrity of the grand Victorian mansion. The house was sold again in the 1980s and the new owners worked hard to undo everything that Alexander had done and restored it to how it looked in its heyday. They revived the earlier woodwork and design like the stained glass and the hand stenciled border in the library and the revival of the house also seemed to revive the ghost. One night, the new owners had house guests visiting from out of town. They arrived very late in the evening and there was hardly time for a few words of conversation before the visitors went right to bed. They had been asleep for some time when they were awakened by a voice outside of their bedroom. It was coming from the direction of the main staircase. The voice belonged to a little girl who was calling for her father. Assuming their hosts would take care of the child's needs, the guests turned over and went back to sleep. Oddly, the incident came up as a topic of conversation the next morning at breakfast. One of the guests remarked that she was unaware that the hosts had children, but she'd heard their daughter calling for her father in the middle of the night. But she was correct in the first place. The hosts had no children and there were no children in the house at the time. Well, not living ones anyway. St. Louis's Washington University, founded in 1853, has often been called the most haunted of the area's schools. For no other reason, it's very possible that Washington University provided the inspiration for some of the most famous movie ghost hunters of all time. Perhaps the most famous haunted place among many on the campus is Whitmore House, a residence that was donated to the university by the family of the same name in the early 1960s. Shortly after it was given to the school, the decision was made to renovate it and turn it into Washington University's faculty club. Soon after contractors started working on the project, they quickly realized that the empty building was not so empty after all. Strange happenings in the house began shortly after workmen unearthed what had been a waiting pool in the backyard. The pool had been filled with dirt for years and it was uncovered by accident. Buried in the pool, they found a toy baby carriage, a doll, and several random household items. Right after this, the weirdness started. Tools began disappearing and turning up in other places in the house. Footsteps were heard pacing the floors upstairs when no one else was in the building. The men also heard loud, arguing voices from other parts of the house. Assuming at first that the voices were coming from outside, they checked the yard, but no one was there. The men began to realize they were not alone in the old house. The eerie happenings continued after the club opened. Managers and staff members also began reporting strange occurrences. They heard sounds in the attic that couldn't be explained, footsteps like those reported by the workmen, doors that opened and closed on their own and then slammed shut. In fact, the attic door opened and slammed closed so often that employees jammed wooden wedges under the door to make sure that it stayed open. The most unsettling manifestations, though, were the apparitions. They emerged from doorways and corridors and from corners of the room and then vanished just as quickly. One of them was reportedly the shape of a bearded man in a plaid shirt. He was only seen from the waist up and then disappeared. The club's manager, Arthur Klein, was working late one night and heard a boisterous party taking place on the first floor. He hurried downstairs to see who was there but found the club to be empty. Arthur was not the only one who heard those sounds. A neighbor was passing by the house at the time, heard the noises, got concerned, and came up to the front door to investigate. Well, after several years of this, staff members of the club decided to get in touch with St. Louis paranormal investigators, Phil Goodwilling and Gordon Honer, the Haunt Hunters, who we've mentioned in earlier episodes of the podcast. They came to Whitmore House in May 1972 with plans to conduct a seance. The plan was they would either contact the ghosts that were present in the house, or they would get in touch with the unconscious mind of someone in the house who might be the source of the activity. One of the staff members that Phil and Gordon had asked to be present for the seances was a young woman referred to as Mary. She had been the witness to the bearded apparition in the club and the haunt hunter suspected that she might be affecting the activity with paranormal abilities that she had no idea she possessed. There were four people at the seance in the attic of the house, Phil, Gordon, Mary, and another club employee. A table was placed in the center of the room and candles were placed on it. The only other light in the attic was a dangling bare bulb that was located just outside of the attic door. The door itself had been propped open with one of the wooden wedges. As a way of contacting the spirits, they placed a large piece of newsprint paper and a writing planchet on the table. The planchet was a small heart shaped piece of wood on rollers that had a pencil attached to it. When the participants placed their fingers lightly on the device, the pencil would spell out messages that allegedly came from the spirits. Almost as soon as they began the session, and as the planchet was just starting to move on the paper, the room suddenly started to become much darker. They realized the attic door was somehow closing on its own. The wedge was pushed back into place and the seance continued. The paper filled with scrawled lines and gibberish during the first five to 10 minutes. And then several clear, obvious words appeared. They were driven hard into the paper. Phil Goodwilling leaned forward so that he could see them better. And they became frighteningly clear. They read, get out of my house, death to Mary. Yikes. Just moments later, the windows in the attic banged open and a cold wind swept into the room. The candles were snuffed out and the room was plunged into darkness. Even the Haunt Hunters later admitted that they screamed and fled the house. Was Whitmore House really haunted or were the strange happening somehow connected to the unsuspecting Mary as the Haunt Hunters believed? Or was it a combination of both? We'll never know. Soon after the seance took place, Phil Goodwilling discovered that the seance had been unauthorized and had not been approved by university officials. They were unable to return to the house, but the story didn't go away. Breathless accounts of what happened in the attic that night were told on campus for years. They may have even caught the imagination of a Washington university student named Harold Ramis, who was inspired by the haunt hunters to come up with a film version of his own ghost-busting team a decade or so later. Who you gonna call
1: have you ever wanted to learn a new language and I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits yo weirdos I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30 year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now. So like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards, I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season 4 of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a 9 to 5 job when I'm not at the podcast factory, and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey! No! Don't! do Don't! Don't walk away, oh, Troy. Where did we? Here. Just kidding. So. I mean, we, we can use that. <laughs> but we could put it right there. It kind of, that those things are easy to find when I'm recording because I see the spike. Right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> exactly. It's either, it's either you yelling or I put a cup down yeah, on, on Yeah, the there's something on table. the
0: table. I know. That's why I moved my cup over there. That's smart.
1: <laughs> Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 27, which is the 14th episode of season 2, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor.
0: Who is very excited that Labor Day is now over, and it is officially fall. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care what the... Equinox says as far as when Labor Day is over it is now fall. You're just so. happy
1: you can wear whatever colors you want and you don't like have any problems, right? Or is that is it the opposite? Well, I think no,
0: I think you're supposed to not wear white after Oh, Labor well that Day, wasn't that wasn't a problem I anyway. don't wear white anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so I, I guess we're
1: good. <laughs> so now that's just that's my excuse to only wear black oh, all I the see, time. Oh, I see. I yeah. see. Got it. All right. Well, awesome. that makes sense
0: then. So, yeah, everything is starting to really gear up for fall, so it's been pretty exciting. And my new book came out today, so that yeah. is also exciting. <laughs> I don't so. want to talk about it, but we <laughs> need to talk about it. So tell me about this it book. It is the book that haunts your nightmares. So. will. it will. Yeah. Actually, yeah, my new book, Suffer the Children, uh, was released today. Um, murder, Violence, Ghosts, and, of course, Cody's favorite thing, Ghost Children. Um, yeah, I had to do it. <laughs> I know. I know, right? So... Uh, but, yeah, it is um, – it was uh, It was one of those books that I didn't realize how long I'd been working on it because I usually have a few projects going at the same time. And I realized that I actually started writing this thing like um, the end of last fall. And, uh, I mean, I've done other stuff in between there. Um, it was kind of a back-and-forth project because, honestly, it wasn't one of those books that I wanted to just work on nothing but that. Yeah. Um, you go a little crazy. Well, you can. You can. You I remember when Renee Cruz and I were working on uh, the disaster books we did, the uh, Pale Horse was Death and and Hell followed with it. Um, she would talk about having like nightmares where she'd wake up in the middle of the night and think she smelled smoke because she'd been spending so much time writing about you know the fires yeah. and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's been one of those books that is one of the ones that are. It's really hard to get it off your mind when you're working on stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done this with a few books that I've written over the years. And as it turned out, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about that. And um, I was talking about working on my book about the Grimes sisters in Chicago, the two sisters that disappeared that were murdered and Marion Parker who also have been murdered. And neither one of them are in this book because I did entire books on those cases. And but those were super disturbing and depressing books to work on, and this was the same way. Except it wasn't just one story; it was story after story after yeah. story. But, um, but I'm proud of the book. I mean, it, it really is a, tra- <laughs> a traumatizing book. I think for some people, Lisa won't even read it. Um, I was curious. You know, Lisa like won't read it. Being so, a parent,
1: like is that know. just? I'm sure that's stuff you want to stay away. Yeah, from. Yeah, she
0: just she doesn't doesn't even want to read it. And um, I but. It's been one of those things that is one of those books I was glad to get out of my system mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, um, but, yeah, I, I, um, I think people will like it. Um, and, and if you're listening to this and you think that you're, you, you're not going to be traumatized and you want to read it, uh, even though I have issued a number of warnings to people that if you're bothered by stuff like this, you should not read this book. But if you are interested, um, don't forget that since you're a podcast listener – uh, you can get a 10% discount off your order. Just use the promo code PODCAST when you're checking out.
1: Yeah, and I will make sure to add a link to the new book and to your Haunted St. Louis book. Oh, in, yeah, which it, we've
0: delved into a lot this Yeah, so that'll be set,
1: in the so, show notes, so. so check for that. Sure. Uh, we also have a lot more great shows coming up heading into the Halloween season. We do.
0: We do. We've got our Haunted Houses, one of which is the episode that we'll be talking about here in just a minute. And uh, we've got another episode of haunted houses. See, I didn't even, I didn't even surprise you with it this time. No. I just said right up front, two episodes yep. on haunted houses. So I didn't have to go. Well, I'm not sure how many episodes this will be. I'm saving that for our final story of the season. So yeah, I'm not sure how many episodes that'll be. We're just gonna have to roll with it. So we'll just see what happens. So.
1: uh we also received our podcast t-shirts i I have one now leah has one i got to wear it my mom's even wearing one uh so those are awesome you can find those at americanhauntingspodcast.com you can find them on a couple other websites that troy has Uh, i'll put links to those in the show notes as well um they're really cool
0: yeah i uh i just i just wore mine a couple of days ago i just had it out and um yeah i i really like it and um it was a cool design. Again, did we ever find out? I couldn't. Where that no, came it's from? Just some okay. like
1: pseudonym screen name okay. thing. Well, so.
0: anyway, someone, and I, I, I don't know if you're a listener. Um, if you're not, I don't know why you would have made it. But if you're a listener, uh, we are sorry that we don't know who you are, but we really like the, the logo that you made for us. We use it on everything. Yeah. So, but So thank you. Um, well, but if you. Get a hold of us and can prove it's you. we'll send you a t- shirt yeah um, don't please don't everyone say that they did it, please I mean we're just two guys doing the show so don't 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 bombard us with messages oh, that was me Right. So, well i you know. will
1: I will say all right, if it's really you send me the transcript of the very awkward request that I had for this particular logo, and then I'll know that it's really <laughs> you. know that it's you yeah. <laughs> All right, you want to dive into some hard sure, houses? yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the first house that we have here, uh, it, this this story, you you really go for it real fast uh, with this because I was I was reading into this and I was like, wow, he's not pulling any punches. This is a brutal, yeah, it's story, a pretty messed
0: up story. And <laughs> and actually, you know, originally, and I and I talk about that, I talked about that in the monologue too. That you know, a lot of the rhetoric that the newspaper decided to use to describe this woman um, I mean it made it sound like she's you know out running the streets with a butcher knife stabbing women and children and
1: Jane the Ripper yeah (laughs) it's
0: not exactly how it was it's just that we have to keep in mind that the time period and the subject matter that we're dealing with here um, abortion was highly illegal at the time Mm -hmm. and you know was obviously frowned upon in all society And so, by painting her as well, and they couldn't say it though. See, that was the issue. They couldn't say that in the newspaper. All we could know was that she was a midwife who was killing babies. Well, read between the lines, you get it, you know. But um, so it it really painted her as a as this this horrific monster. But let's be honest. I mean, this woman was was horrible. Yeah, I mean, there's no question she was a
1: horrible person. Right, right. You know? we, yeah, We don't want to try to draw yeah, those lines. I mean,
0: you know, and no matter how you feel about what she was doing, that the, the fact that she was, you know, letting her patients die, these girls who would come in for these horrible botched operations and then would get an infection and die. And, you know, so she then buries the body on, in the cellar, you yeah. know, of the, of the barn or, you know, buries them under false names. I mean, these are the ones we know of. I mean, these are the ones that these two nurses who decided to testify against her um, describe. These are the, the girls who died, but there may have been many more. So, I mean, it's it's she was awful and may have been more awful than we know. But the newspapers really went over the top.
1: Right. But know. so for, for Henrietta Bam- Bamberger, Bamberger, we don't have any kind of like real body count idea. No, we don't. We
0: don't. We really don't. It's it's. I mean, it, it really is a mystery. We as far as how many people may have died on her yeah. operating table or shortly afterward. Um, these are the, the three that she was brought to trial for. Are the three that we know. That's right. What we know of.
1: And it seems like, uh, you know, she was using uh, these people would die and then she was. Trying to cover up her other crimes, but she still also seems kind of evil. At the oh same yeah, at no, time.
0: no question. I mean, she's awful. I mean, this woman was a monster. I mean, there's there's no there's no way around that. And this is a this is sort of a an overview of the story. I had to kind of make it you know a narrative story out of Haunted St. Louis because I tell the whole story in there, and there's a lot of further sorted details about how these girls died and what happened to them and that kind of thing too. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty awful. I mean, it's an awful story and, you know, it's not really a surprise um, that people believed that her house was haunted Um, You know, they had to hire a night watchman to keep people out, A, because they thought, see, really things haven't changed that much. People trying to get into abandoned properties now because they think they're haunted. Um, It was the same way back in 1900 in St. Louis. The other thing that you have to uh, understand about St. Louis at the time is that the newspapers were filled with ghost stories. I mean, just jammed. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many stories going back through the old newspaper files, and I included a lot of stuff like that in Haunted St. Louis that I found for the very first time, because now a lot of these newspaper files were accessible where they weren't, you know, 15 years ago right. when I first wrote that book, and I found a lot of different and old stories, and they were there were there were stories about ghosts in the newspapers on a weekly basis. I mean, all the time. So it really wasn't surprising that you know Harriet. You know, Henrietta Bamberger went from being this this horrible murderer who ended up just with five years in prison for manslaughter. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. You know, um, but it's not surprised that her house when it, after it was abandoned was considered haunted, not with everything else that was going on in the city at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a time when ghost stories would just be that prevalent in the newspaper. That yeah. would have been great. Yeah, I, I'd probably yeah. buy newspapers. Yeah, I know it. I know it. Oh, and then the, some of her victims, uh, you go through some of the names in the stories, but one of them that stuck out to me was Ida Zimmerman, because after she died from complications, her body was stuffed into a trunk, loaded into a wagon, and dumped in the mail Yeah, and
0: that's actually more complicated than, than it sounds. Um, it sounds kind of complicated. Uh, it does, but it was even more complicated because, um, and I couldn't explain it all and make it all make sense in a short amount of time. So what, <laughs> what happened was she died, and... Henrietta arranged for a uh, like a, a teamster to come to the house with a big trunk mm-hmm. um, now I'm sure she didn't tell him I'm going to stuff a body in this I mean, she right. took the trunk inside and um, loaded the body she folded up the, the girl and put her in the trunk locked it up she and the teamster carried it out to the wagon but apparently the teamster wasn't strong enough to put it in himself so Henrietta did by herself? By herself. Oh, man. So I'm not sure. I mean, that says some interesting things about her. I mean, I'm getting a whole, like, Bell Gunnis vibe. I don't know if you know that story. I do this. Not. Uh, We'll have to talk about that at some point. But Belle Gunnis was this uh, big Norwegian woman who had a farm in northwest Indiana, and she would advertise in the Lonely Hearts columns in Scandinavian newspapers that she was looking for a husband. You know, she was wealthy and had this big farm and was looking for a husband who had some money to invest, and guys would come and then would never be seen again. Well, after she disappeared or died, depending on the story that you believe, and that's, a, that's still a big question, what happened to Bill Gunness. Um, they unearthed, like dug up the, like, the hog area on the farm and found all these bodies of these guys. So, but she was supposedly this big manly woman who was murdering these guys, and I don't mean just like slipping them poison. I mean like beating them to death. Jeez. And so when Henrietta is grabbing the steamer trunk and throwing it in a wagon – and taken it to the bridge where she then dumped the body out and then dumped the body into the water, not the trunk. Mm-hmm. So when the floating girl was found in the Merrimack River a short time later, they assumed she committed suicide. So nobody thought twice about it until these nurses came forward and identified this girl as being one of Henrietta's victims. Gotcha. Uh, so it's, it's actually more complicated than I made, <laughs> I made it in the story here in our narrative. So
1: All uh, right. Well, let's move on to something on a bit of a lighter <laughs> note. No, not at all. Not uh, really. We're going to yeah. move well, to a different area. Ghost so, Kid. So, yes, Ghost Kid, which is freaking great, of course. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to the castle or Horton's place. And so what I got from this story is that Central West End has always been pretentious, apparently.
0: Yeah. Oh, it always has. Well, I mean, it was built to be pretentious. It was built to be an escape from downtown. Um, this is where, you know, all the wealthy people went. And, you know, it's funny, and I, I kind of made a funny kind of a aside about that at the beginning of this, is that people have tried to create all these really pretentious um, reasons why private places in St. Louis existed. Oh, it's a you know, continuation of the French town square or the colonial idea of building walls around, you know, stockade fences around the city. And I'm like, well, they were building fences all right, but it wasn't to keep out the Indians. It right. was to keep out all the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole point behind it is that we're wealthy and we don't want the riffraff where we live. Um, and that's why they all existed. I mean, that's that was the, the reason behind them. But, you know, people have tried to put a lot of, you know, sociological reasons and you know reasons behind private places but it really that's what it boils down to
1: right no that makes sense and so so this place is built by Jacob Goldman uh, who was a he ran a cotton company
0: yes yes he came here from Germany and started a cotton company down south moved to St. Louis and then imported it uh, to St. Louis and became one of the largest cotton merchants in the world see of all these different people who came and lived in these private places and a lot of these people who were the leading citizens of St. Louis, I like this guy. Yeah, I I do. There's something about him I like. I think I like him. Well, I feel bad for him. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I do feel really bad for him. But what I really think was great is he kept trying to move his family into these private places that existed on the west side. And, um, all of them turned him away because he was a Jew. Right. So he's like, "Oh, screw you! I'll just build my own." Then, so <laughs> I like That's it. why I liked it. And then, of course, then everybody wanted in, you know. Uh, but prior to that, you know, nobody wanted him around. But they all wanted to come to his parties, and they all wanted to buy property in the, you know, in the private place that he had built. So I kind of, I kind of, I, I admire him. Uh, I think a lot more than a lot of the other, you know merchants and businessmen and things from St. Louis history who, you know, built these, you know, and lived off the sweat of everybody else and, you know, built a railroad and didn't pay people and, yeah. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, I think um, if you've ever been to, I don't know if you've, have you ever been to Horton's place?
1: I haven't. I've um, been to Central West End many yeah, times, but
0: I'm just riding around in that area. Um, and, you know, now, I mean, the private places really aren't that private anymore for the most part most of them are are not gated um so much uh but you can see all these beautiful homes you know Mm -hmm. uh, and you know houses that you know you couldn't if you moved into this private place you had to spend at least thirty thousand dollars to build your house well that doesn't seem like anything today until you compare it to what you know that was you know nearly a million dollars in today's money yeah you know seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that is the equivalency um So you have a lot of really beautiful places, but um, the castle is pretty amazing. I mean, if you get into Horton's Place, and a lot of people go because they want to see Elsa Limps house. I was going to say, do Uh, we? Because that was where Elsa lived, was in Horton's Place. That's where her house was. And uh, so a lot of people want to see where that is. But the castle is another house that's very distinctive in that particular little neighborhood there. And, uh, you know, he built it. He named it, you know, named the place in honor of his daughter. He built the, you know, built this beautiful home. And it's had a reputation for being haunted pretty much since he built it. Yeah. I mean, almost from the very beginning. Um, the, 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 as soon as the, the, the Goldmans were gone from the house, people started talking about it being haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, the next family in there, even after they tried to kind of lighten things up and bring in a family and things, they, they noticed that there was something very odd going on. Yeah, the house, so the, freaking out the staff. Yeah, the, so the, yeah. Mil, the
1: Miller family and their staff—they noticed a ghostly little girl who was heard calling out by the staircase at night. Yeah,
0: yeah, it sounds like just your kind of place. Yes. Really. Yeah.
1: And then he did what I would have done—he hired an armed guard. Yeah, I like the that. house I like that. on Halloween uh, night. <laughs> uh, and then, okay, so the house changes hands again. Um, I'm sh- I'm sure, probably. Multiple times, maybe, but at least we yeah. know Barry Alexander. We, right. In well, 71. we know there
0: was an artist who tried to turn it into a boarding house by before that, because by the '60s, a lot of that area was kind of not all of it, but a lot of it was in a bit of a slide, mm-hmm. um, and so people were trying to do you know whatever they could to kind of get by. But yeah, the guy that bought it in '71 was he really just wrecked the place.
1: I mean, he, <laughs> he put in a conversation yeah, pit, which, which I've I mean, seen in says, movies. Yeah, and stuff.
0: nothing. Nothing says. Nothing says tacky 70s, like shag rugs and conversation pits. I just thought that was awesome. Uh, A brown shag carpeting conversation pit. So, yeah, I guess he really, uh, really turned the house into, uh, I mean, I think he spent a lot of money on it. I bet. But unfortunately, it looked like a set from an Austin Powers movie by the time
1: he got done. So. Yeah. And then it's it's sold again in the 80s so they could, uh, you say, undo everything. Start that, over that Alexander again. Done. And, yeah. uh, and what happened is what we see often, it says revival of the house also seemed to revive the ghost, yeah, yeah. which is a lot of times you disturb things or change right, things right. and um, ghosts yeah. speak up. Remodeling seems to definitely,
0: you know get the spirits all in a stir. Well,
1: I bet so. if Alexander was there, he's like I worked so hard on that oh, conversation yeah, I'm pit, sure, right? Yeah. I don't know I don't know if he
0: died, but it, maybe if he did, he I decided to hung, hang around probably and was so angry. So,
1: <laughs> and then just more more stories of guests visiting from out yeah. of town and hearing children and mm-hmm. a little girl in particular and then finding out that there are no children yeah, no in this children house. children in
0: the house. Yeah.
1: So. Uh, all right. Well, we can move on then to the last house on here uh, which is the Whitmore house, which I had to include yeah. for obvious reasons because and I think honestly I think this
0: may be our final our this may be our final goodbye to the haunt hunters.
1: Oh, um, you're not going to reference not, them again? They
0: will not be returning to the podcast again, um okay. unfortunately. So, this was their last hurrah, so I wanted to make sure that they got proper credit in this story. So, right.
1: Perfect. Um, no, I think you you mentioned to one of our listeners before that they would make a return. Yes, um, and yes. they did. So this is uh, at st louis's washington university yeah uh, i got to give a oh, side note i got to give a talk there to their entrepreneurship class oh yeah that's right that's and right and that's
0: where our buddy dave goodwin yeah uh runs security there oh so, awesome yeah. Yeah. yeah they
1: asked me not to return because uh, i told them all <laughs> to stop paying tuition and go oh, start great. a company oh good they yeah. were upset yeah. but they're entrepreneurs you know yeah, yeah well right what are they doing in college that's you, you know. know that was my thing <laughs> but anyway so strange happenings um start happening in the house shortly after workmen unearthed what had been a waiting pool yeah in the that's the
0: weird part of the story i don't i don't know what the connection there is um but that's always something that i have found in any any time i've seen this story mentioned or documented anywhere that's the one thing they always point out is they found this waiting pool in the backyard and you know shades of the changeling found like a doll carriage or something in the th- and like toys, like buried in this waiting yeah, pool. Yeah, creepy. And then strange things started to happen in the house. And I don't know what the connection would be there. I have no idea. Uh, but for whatever reason, that seemed to be what kind of set things off. Because as soon as that happened, then all of a the sudden these strange things started happening inside the house where these guys are just working. I mean, they're, they're just trying to remodel the place, turn it into faculty club. And they, you know, their tools are disappearing, and they're hearing footsteps, and they're seeing shadows, and they're seeing figures, and then once the place opened, it just kept going, you know, they, they, more and more things happen, and there was the, the one girl, and I didn't lean on it too hard, other than to kind of mention that she was there for the seance, this girl, Mary, uh, which was not her name, it was, it's a, it's a fake name that she was given to, for the story, but, she uh, she seemed to be the one who saw most of the things happening, saw most of the apparitions, saw most the um, you know the odd things, the lights that turn on and on and that kind of thing. But it was the entire staff. I mean, they were all having experiences, and they could all attest to like the thing with the attic door. Yeah, that they just it couldn't they couldn't keep it open. I mean, it would just it would slam shut all the time. So they finally just wedged the thing so that it wouldn't move anymore, and uh, which you know came into play during the the seance that they did in may of 72
1: yeah i was wondering about the mary name because i was like is
0: this just what it's mary seems to be connected yeah, it and was, everything yeah that's the but. thing when you uh when you write when you write a story you can put mary in quotation marks but um i can't record that you know with uh, auto audibly and right. say mary in quotation marks. Right. I mean, even if I do the fake ones with my hands, you got to be doing you real You can't see loud. that. Yeah, yeah. That, no one can hear me do that. So, uh, but that, yeah, that wasn't her real name. That was okay, just good. one of the employees there in the staff. I know too many Marys. It's just too right? many Marys. So, so one of the yeah. things
1: I thought was really funny. Uh, you said one of the most uns- uh, unsettling manifestations. Uh, Apparitions, and instead, one of them reportedly took the shape of a bearded man in a plaid shirt, you know, was only seen from the waist up. What I was going to say he's like a lumberjack <laughs> yeah, ghost, a or the brawny man,
0: hipster lumberjack, yes. uh, a, a lumbersexual man. Yes. Came down the hallway. So, as I have a beard and often wear flannel shirts, but still, yes. you know. Um, but yes. um... I think it just got everybody's attention. I think mostly because he was only seen from the waist up. Yeah. So that, you know, kind of throw you off just a little bit. Yeah, there, I yeah think, half so. ghost. Yeah.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the seance yeah. in oh, the yeah. attic?
0: Yeah, because uh, I think the point the point of the seance with, with the Haunt Hunters was to see if the there really was a ghost or if it was all Mary. Because I guess from the amount of things that she was experiencing and the things that she'd reported – um, the Haunt Hunters had, had come to believe that maybe it was activity that was manifesting around her. Right? Okay. Specifically yeah. around her. So that that way, you know, it maybe that she was the cause. Maybe they could figure that out with the seance. And um, I think that, and I, I mentioned this at the end, I'm, I'm not convinced that it was all Mary. Uh, but it, she might have been part of it, though. I wonder if it wasn't a combination of, of two things going on. Um, but the house actually being haunted because some of the stuff that happened was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the, the attic door closing by itself, even though it had been propped open with one of those wooden wedges they were using, is pretty dramatic on its own. Um, but then these guys who were not who were not given to, you know, wild things that they just didn't make up stories about this stuff, they seem to be pretty down to earth claimed that one of the windows banged open, you know, and the candles went out. I mean, this stuff happened physically on its own, and they witnessed it and ran from the house. Yeah. I mean, they were they were willing to admit the fact that they ran out of the place because it startled them. Um, and, and honestly, I didn't want to – I wouldn't want to be the person where – You know, I'm at a seance and the message comes out, get out of my house, death to Troy. Yeah. So I can see why Mary would want to leave as well. Absolutely. Um, That would be my last day on the job there, I think. Oh, man.
1: I feel like now in the future we have to do an episode on like haunted people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That could be really interesting. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Plenty of that stuff going on. So, Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, they didn't, they, I think they kind of left with the idea that, you know, was it all connected to the history of the house? I mean, because there really wasn't anything in the house's history that would make it be haunted. I yeah. mean it was just a family home and they, you know, had donated it to the university. It wasn't like, you know, some horrible it wasn't like Henrietta Bamberger's house where some horrible thing had happened or, you know, a little girl died and, you know, was connected to her father like the other story mm-hmm. this was just a house and for whatever reason became haunted i think that's why they were so convinced that it had something to do with mary but we'll never know i mean they they never found out because they weren't even supposed to be there in the first place <laughs> so right yeah they I, discovered then they got kicked out. i like so, that yeah.
1: it at, uh, the the university did not sanction uh, the no it was definitely
0: unauthorized and uh so they were not happy with the fact that it even happened but you know that's what but the story was so good that everybody kept telling it you know right. they told it and everybody else was telling it and that's why i always make the connection with Harold Ramis right. being at Washington University at the time you know and uh, if he heard this story and heard about this team of guys who came in to investigate the you know you could see how that could turn into something later on the cinematic so, masterpiece you know, ghostbusters that's right it's always oh speaking of that if you take have you have you seen this if you take your iphone and you ask Siri, um, who are you going to call? Oh, no, I yeah, have not. Yeah, it, just do it sometime. I'm, I'm, I'm advising you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you already know if you're listening to this. You already know what Siri's going to say. Um, but yeah. then if you tell Siri to call Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. um, then you'll get another reply. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. But the, ba- the right. fun thing to do first is just ask Siri, uh, who are you going to call? Hey, Siri, who are you going to call? And see what she says. And then after you get an answer, then say, hey, Siri, call Ghostbusters. Mm. And then you'll get another reply. Is there something strange in your neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, she <laughs> heard phone you. just went off, oh, and it oh, just sh- said, is there something strange in your neighborhood? Uh, oh, that's, that's classic. That's amazing. I didn't even <laughs> – I guess Siri heard my heard me talking. My phone was sitting on the table out of the way, so well, I feel like it the, just answered. If the cat's out of the bag, should I do it towards the mic? If you have an iPhone, if you're listening to this, there is something that, that's pretty funny that you can do. Um, take your iPhone and, and, and talk to Siri and say, Hey, Siri, who are you going to call?
1: Ghostbusters, or whomever you ask me to call.
0: So <laughs> it's, you get a pretty good answer, yeah. but it gets even better. If you wait and then say, uh, okay, Siri, call Ghostbusters. Siri, call Ghostbusters. Which apparently has decided to go to sleep. Siri, call Ghostbusters.
1: Calling emergency services. In- <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh my! God. Let's try that again. Okay.
0: Siri. Call Ghostbusters. Siri, call Ghostbusters.
1: Is there something strange in your neighborhood? (laughs) <laughs> okay. so,
0: pretty funny. Got it. So you get a pretty good response from Siri if you right. uh, play along with the whole game. I don't know what Busters all we're going to leave
1: in, but I want to say be careful when you do yeah, that. Yeah, do be careful because
0: case. what what Cody just cut out was I did make an attempt to call Ghostbusters, and then Siri said, calling emergency services <laughs> in three t- I had to cancel that. So um, be very careful. If you decide to try that little trick. Yes, it is pretty funny.
1: It was, it's funny that when you try to do it, it doesn't work, but yeah. when you don't, it, it <laughs> works. Okay, so on October 5th, uh, we're going to be doing a ghost hunt at Mineral Springs in Alton, Illinois. And I've done some of these tours before, different walking tours, been to Mineral Springs many times, but yeah. I've never done the like 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. thing. Can you tell me a little bit about what to expect and what's going to happen?
0: Well, it's uh, well. I should also, before I say that Cody and I are going to be there doing this ghost hunt, um, I should tell you already that it's sold out. Yes, so it, you um, messed up if yeah, you Yeah. So, but I mean, if you, you know, we have other events coming up. But as far as this Mineral Springs one goes. Um, we we've actually got the building to ourselves for the night and we've got the whole building you know um sometimes if you come in on one of our tours or um whether even our dinner tours or our walking tours or whatever you do get to see the hotel you do do get to come in you do see some of the haunted places um but on a an actual just a regular tour you can't see the entire place Um, there just isn't time Uh, but on october 5th we'll have the entire building to ourselves to explore for the night And when I say the entire building, I mean um, Pearl's room, uh, the the haunted room that's left from the hotel, um, all the way down to the bottling plant and the slaughterhouse, all the way in the the very seven floors down into the basement underground areas of the hotel, um, where there has been a lot of activity over the years. And of course the swimming pool and that kind of thing. So um, normally what we do is, because we've got this entire gigantic building, but we have a small group of people Um, usually I'll take everybody through and kind of give them an overview of everything there so that they kind of see where they're going, see where things are, um, where they can and can't explore, which pretty much if a door's locked, you can't go through it. Otherwise, it's open. And so you can see pretty much everything and and see what's left of the old hotel. I mean, there are still old rooms, and there's a lot of areas that you never get to see if you just go into the place. You just don't realize just how big the mineral springs is um, and then people are allowed to either go in groups or by themselves uh, we'll usually set a time for everybody to get back together we usually will get back together sometime in the middle um, talk about some things do some things and then let everybody go again until they're ready to leave so awesome. it's a it's a good time it's a lot of fun and um you know it's people ask what well, do i need to bring a whole bunch of you know technical equipment and that's see that's a sore subject for me because while that that kind of stuff is fun the equipment is fun um i don't think it's necessary um i think with equipment People ask, well, what, what should I bring? Well, you know, bring a camera, a recorder, or I mean, anymore, your, your phone. cell phone camera's better than cameras you can buy for the most part. Uh, bring a camera, bring a recorder, bring a notebook and a pen and, you know, just don't worry about all the gadgets and gizmos. I mean, it's neat to have that stuff. Yeah. And you know, when something happens and you can measure, a, you know, you can scientifically measure a temperature drop or something, it's very cool. It gives you some good evidence. But unless you're, you know, an experienced paranormal investigator or you're doing it because you're writing a report on the investigation or something, you're just coming to try to experience some stuff, you know, bring what you can carry. Because, I mean, I I see people show up for things like this sometimes and they'll have cases and cases of stuff. Well, by the time you set all that up, half the night's over. So, you know, and then so then you spend the rest of the night taking it all down, (laughs) you know, and you don't really get to use it. So, you know, unless you've really got 12 hours to spend somewhere, I don't know that you need all that kind of stuff. But um, I've just, I've been for a really long time, I've been somebody who just really enjoys experiencing the place. Um, I would rather have my own experiences. I I don't, for me, I, I don't have any doubt, I don't have any need to prove that the Mineral Springs is haunted. I already feel that it is. I've had my own experiences there already. So for me, that's, for me personally speaking, I like to be able to experience the places that uh, I'm writing about or, you know, we're working with or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Great. Yeah.
0: Okay. well, I guess we should wrap up this one. And um, we uh, we have one more episode of Haunted Houses still to go. And uh, I should also mention that we do have something coming up in Alton that is uh, we're excited about and uh, we can't really tell you what it is yet. Um, But by the time uh, our next episode airs, we should have already put out the information about it. But uh, anyway, I think that that you'll be intrigued if you're in the Illinois area and you're in the Alton-St. Louis area uh, by what we've got coming up. Uh, sometime soon. So, uh, with that cryptic note, <laughs> I'll, I'll turn things back over to Cody. Hey, thanks again for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. Uh, we've also noticed that you guys have really slacked off with the reviews it's on true. iTunes. Um, we really need those reviews. I mean, or at least uh, something. Give us some stars. Give us uh, just write a little something about the co- the, uh, the the podcast and uh, get it up there on iTunes. It helps people find the show. Uh, People seem to be finding it anyway. Uh, We are, are, you know, a lot of people listening, a lot of new people are listening, but it makes it a lot easier for people to find it if you can put up a review for us, so we would really appreciate that. And uh, turning it back over to Cody.
1: And I know new people are listening every week, which I really appreciate, but now I need you to go and, (laughs) and write a review. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you again in two weeks. American Hauntings podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can check the show notes to find links to all of our social media accounts. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings, or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck.